You can take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to go through here a, a, a conclusion of the sermon series that all the pastors have been preaching over the last few weeks. And I want to thank them again publicly for just their study, their love of God, their love of Jesus Christ, the love of the Word that they exhibit, and the love that they exhibit for you. Because when they study, they study not selfishly, but, but lovingly, thinking about you and caring about you and praying for you. And, and so I want to thank them again for that and what God's doing in and through their hard work. And I also want to continue this thought of community. And the word community in our day has kind of been watered down because of overuse. You know, words, when they become overused, when they're overused, they often lose effect. And so, you know, like the word awesome, you know, you just wouldn't have found a Puritan, okay? You wouldn't have found a Puritan at a ball game watching a football play and say, awesome, man! They just didn't use words that way because words like awesome and great and almighty, they were reserved for God and God alone. Because if we overuse them, then they don't mean anything. We say the ball game was awesome. We say God is awesome. We say love is another one, right? We overuse often. We love our dog, our cat. We love our yard. We love our grill. We love our wife. You just think about that. I mean, we use them so much. We throw them around so lightly, these words that they get over. Communities that way. I live in a neighborhood. We no longer call it neighborhoods, right? What do we call it? Community. And that doesn't sound nice. Community. Pebble Creek, a good sense community. I mean, the Alabama Power Company got in on this racket, you know, because now all our homes are rated for higher energy, which I'd like to see some of that on my bill. But anyway, these houses are supposed to be insulated well, secured well, and and it's a good sense community. And we all live in a community, right? But that word is just so watered down. I mean, I remember from the 1980s, the late 80s, and maybe early 90s, I don't know, um, that you might recognize this, right? You might recognize this song because it was popularized by a TV show. Making your way in the world today, I'm sparing you the singing because I'm not a singer. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Y'all remember that song? Now this was never a top 40 billboard song, okay? This song really was just popularized by a a sitcom that happened, gasp, in a bar with a bunch of buddies, blue-collar buddies, who came at the end of the workday and drank a cold one together and had community. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away that high-pitched little tag? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came, especially Sam, because you're going to keep him in business, right? You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. You want to go where people know people are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. Now, I googled the song because I wanted to be exact about not, you know, misuse it or whatever. But now, don't quote me on this because these words were never heard on air. All right? So if they're wrong, then the website I got them from wrong, but they're just too good to pass up. I know why they weren't on air. Listen to this. Just humor me a minute. All those nights when you've got no lights, 
The check is in the mail. And your little angel hung the cat up by its tail. And your third fiancé didn't show. And then it repeats. Don't you want to go where everybody knows your name? You know, this is the thing. Roll out of bed. Mr. Coffee's dead. The morning's looking bright. And your shrink ran off to Europe and didn't even write. And your husband wants to be a girl. Prophetic. Be glad there's one place in the world where everybody knows your name and there's all, they're always glad you came. You want to go where people know people are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name. Cheers. Right? Cheers the bar. Popularized in the late 80s, early 90s. Retired baseball pitcher. Broke down arm. Serving brewskis from behind the bar to all of his buddies who all loved each other. But isn't it interesting when the show came to an end, or near the end, you find Norm bellied up to the bar, all the lights are out, everybody's gone home, and nobody's there to know his name. He's just sitting at a bar all by himself. All his buddies aren't there. Nobody probably knows where he lives. Nobody probably knows much about him. They just know the football team that he loves, and they know the wisecrack jokes he liked to make, and, and that's about it. It was just kind of shallow. And when we use community for, for shallow relationship like that, it waters the term down. It makes it really meaningless. And so the Bible, when it speaks of community, is not speaking about that kind of community. It's speaking about something much more fundamental, much more basic, much more of a need in our society. We need community. I'm going to say that again. You and I, we need community. Genesis chapter 1 says you cannot exist without community. Not happily. Not fulfilled. What does it say? When God, excuse me, Genesis 2, when it says that Adam, God saw that Adam was alone and that it was what? Not good. I'm speaking to all of us. Us independent livers, us Americanism, uh, breathing and eating and sleeping people. We cannot survive on an island by ourselves. God did not create lone rangers. If he did, he'd put a lot of tontos with them. Because he said at our basic core level, one of our needs is real community. Real community. And that was exhibited in the garden two ways. God had community with man every day. In the cool of the day, God walked among the garden with Adam and they spoke to one another as friends. They spoke to one another in real community. And it was expressed, so it was expressed vertically, and it's also expressed horizontally with Adam and Eve, who had one flesh community, real bound community, one flesh, inseparable. It's, it's not that the woman is less than the man, nor that the man is greater than the woman, but that the two of them together emulate and represent the image of God. Without the woman, man cannot fully represent God's image. And without the man, woman can't either. The community of the family was needed to show the glory of God in creation. All of creation looked at Adam and Eve and said, that looks a lot like our God. Because all community, in its truest essence, is based on this principle. The Trinitarian principle of God's character. God's being. 
John 17, Jesus prayed this way. Give them the community, the love for one another that we've had with, for one another since the beginning. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, when God was going to create man, Genesis 1, 26, 27, what does he say? Let us create man in what? Our image, after our likeness, let us create him. Male and female, he created them. Right? And so, in the essence of who God is, is community. Community not with others, but with himself. God exists in an eternal, everlasting, inseparable community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then all community flows out of that. You cannot, I cannot represent God well in this life without another. Without another. Whether that be in marriage, or whether that be in friendships, whether that be in the church, which we're going to talk about today, however it's expressed, it must be expressed through Trinitarian relationship. And I want to give you some characteristics of Trinitarian relationship. One, I said them earlier, it is everlasting. The truest communities, the reason your neighborhood can't be a true community, the reason the bar at Cheers is not a real community, is because it is not everlasting. Is it? Neighbors move. People don't show up to the bar. I mean, things happen in life, right? And even when we're living next to each other, we don't really live in real community. We're just kind of coexisting together. But in the character of God is the expression of everlasting community. The Trinity will never be separated. If it is, then everything will cease to exist. Everything holds together by the power of God's character, which in its essence is Trinitarian. Without the Trinity, none of us would exist. It was God's desire to express Himself that caused Him, called on Him from within Himself to create. Not something from without. Not something He lacked. He had it all and He wanted to show it all, in a sense. So He created what we see orbiting the earth, the universe, and most uniquely, the relationship that's capable in humanity and in humanity alone. We are not just a bigger pack of dogs. We are not a pod of apes. We are created in God's image. Human community can last forever. It can last forever. We're going to talk about that. Secondly, it's not just everlasting, but it's inseparable. You don't have the God of the Bible if you worship one part of the being, the God being. You don't have the God of the Bible. So when people say crazy statements like, well, I like the God of the New Testament, Jesus, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. He's mean. Jesus is nice. You should give them a look like your dog looks at you. That is insanity. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God that said to Moses, I am, is the same God, the very same being that said, I am, seven distinct times in the book of John. There is no separation. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit exist eternally and inseparably in their community. Nothing violates that community. Nothing rips that community apart. Not even, not even when Christ dies on the cross is He completely and forever cut away from the rest of the Trinity. God still loved His Son. God still had, though separated because of the sin that we have, 
And because Jesus bore our sin, He could not see the Father. But the Father could see Him. And the essence of the Trinity was not destroyed at the cross. It was upheld and the resurrection proves that. So, it's eternal. It's inseparable. It's inseparable. Two characteristics. Third, it's loving. It's loving. The Trinity is an expression, the purest expression of love. It's why John said God is what? God is love. He didn't say He's almighty. He didn't say He's all-knowing. He did not say He's all-providence. Though He is all of those things. He said He is love. Because at the basis of, at the basic level of the community inside the Trinity is the characteristic love. When the Father knows Himself perfectly, as Jonathan Edwards says, that, that knowledge is so perfect it stands forth in the person of the Son. And the Father and Son loving one another so distinctly and so perfectly from all beginnings, that love stands forth as an entity, as a being, the Holy Spirit. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed forever. So at the basis of their community is love. And fourth, the basis of their community is knowledge. Knowledge. The reason the Trinity cannot be separated is because it knows itself. He knows Himself perfectly. And He loves Himself perfectly. And therefore, nothing can separate. There is nothing you can go to the Father and say about Jesus Christ, the human God-man, the Son, there's nothing you can say about the Son the Father doesn't already know perfectly. And there's nothing you can say about Christ's Father that He hasn't experienced from all beginnings. He knows Himself perfectly. And He loves Himself perfectly. He loves Himself perfectly. He loves everything about Himself. God loves Himself completely, purely, without end. Now, some of you, that's harsh because you're thinking, man, God sounds arrogant. No, God is the only being who, if He did not love Himself perfectly and most supremely, would be committing idolatry. Because not to love Himself completely, would mean that he had to love someone else, and to love someone else is idolatry. He defines it in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. So at the basis of community, what I'm trying to say to you, paint the picture for you, is the Trinity. Without the Trinity, you cannot have community. Without that Trinitarian community, you cannot know the God of the Bible. And that God, the God of the Bible, created community to express himself. So now we see Acts 2, right? Is it any wonder that the people in Acts 2, having been transformed by the power of Jesus Christ's gospel and inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God, now began to know one another completely and love one another without exception? That shouldn't shock us, right? That shouldn't be like, oh my goodness, what happened? No, it's just natural. It just happened because of the power of God. And so I will say that's why because community is built on this Trinitarian principle, 
it is possible for you to have community with one another forever. Because inside of each of you dwells God Himself, the Holy Spirit. And in the end, you will dwell perfectly with Him and with one another. And it will be no moving out of the neighborhood. No days where the lights don't come on. No times where the money runs short. No night where you cry yourself to sleep wishing someone understood you. For you will be surrounded by a whole community of God lovers who in the new creation express that in perfect community. It's possible in eternity to live in community forever. And so what God does in the resurrection, what's so beautiful about the new covenant is God reaches forward into eternity and brings back the blessing of the new creation. He says, because He is so benevolent, I won't make you wait until you get there. I will give you this new community now. So when you tell me, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, that's why I say, you don't know Jesus. Jesus died so that we could have the community we're waiting on now. He was raised so we could have that community now. Is it perfect? No. Not by a long shot. Not by a long shot, but it is eternity brought forward. It's the blessing of the new covenant. It's the picture. It's the beautiful picture of the redeemed of God living together. That's what the church is. And so we look at Acts 2 and verse 41, which is where the Greek breaks the argument of, or the, the picture of, of what went on at Pentecost. The actual, I know in your English translation it starts at 42, but remember those aren't in the original. The original indicates that there's a transition in verse 41. So, those who received His Word, Peter's Word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, what happened? What happened? I want you to hold your place right here in Acts 2. I think the best way to explain what happened in Acts 2 is to look back at the promise made by God to His people. I want to look back quickly with you at Exodus. Exodus, nobody else has said this that I've read, so if it's wrong, I'm wrong. Okay, I'll take credit for it. But as I think about it and read the two books side by side together, I think of Exodus like the Old Covenant Act. It's just like, to me, what's going on in Acts. Why? Because if you look at Exodus, what happens at the beginning of Exodus? God selects for Himself a mediator. He sends that mediator forth in the power of His name to go to a people who don't really want Him, but who, by the end of the plagues, realize we better take Him, right? Because this seems to be God working. But Moses wasn't brought in to rave reviews. Remember his first reviews? What happened? Work got harder. And what did the people say? Go back where you came from. We don't want you. Now here, here Moses is trying to mediate with God and man. He's trying to do what God has commissioned to do. He's just obeying. And because things get harder, they, kick him, they want to kick him out. So it's a lot like when Jesus came, right? Jesus was the selected mediator by God who came to His brothers and was not received. They rejected Him. But did He let their rejection stop Him? No, just like Moses did not let the rejection stop Him. He continued on. 
And God delivered His people through the tenth and most horrible plague, which was to kill the firstborn. Just like we read in Acts that God, in the Gospels, we see the history and Acts recounts it for us that God killed His firstborn. He took the life of His firstborn. Moses then leads the people out of their bondage and their captivity. And what did they receive but gifts from the people? A little bit of the promised land brought forward to them in their redemption. They got it early. The jewels and the crowns and the gold and the silver and all the things they toted out. They took out of captivity. It really wasn't theirs. It was given by the grace of God to them. And then they travel across and God miraculously brings them across the waters of the Red Sea, defeats their enemy, destroys their enemy, redeemed, and, redeemed them and He defended them perfectly, just like God does in Jesus for us. And Acts recounts that for us like Exodus recounts for us. But if you look at Exodus 19-24, through 24, you find the exact, I believe, the exact parallel to Acts chapter 2. Remember the Bible is divided into two things. Two most broad divisions. Old covenant, new covenant. Now don't misunderstand. These are not two completely separate covenants. These two covenants are expressions for us in history of God's covenant of grace. They are expressions for us of God's grace. In, my, in Exodus 19, God brings the people of Israel to the foot of Mount Sinai. He does that through the blast of a trumpet, also described as a mighty rushing wind, which they assembled to the foot of the mountain because it was so piercing they couldn't resist. They came forward. They, Moses had said, on the third day, you'll hear this trumpet. When you hear the trumpet, you come to the mountain. They heard it, and they all came. The assembly of Israel came and stood at the foot of the mountain. And the mediator went up on the mountain and received the law from God. He received the law, the symbol here, the picture here of God meeting with man through the mediator Moses is that God gives the terms of a relationship which already exists. In Exodus chapter 20, this is the way it's expressed in verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, Notice, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then He gives the Ten Commandments. The people did not receive the Ten Commandments as legalism. They received the Ten Commandments as a blessing. They received the Ten Commandments as God's expression of love to them. We got it backwards. What we see in the Old Covenant is a shadow, a picture of the relationship possible through the mediator with God. And the mediator in the Old Covenant is Moses, and he goes up on the mountain, he receives from God the law, which was not legalism, but was grace. I am your God. You are my people. I brought you out of Egypt. I've purchased you. You're mine. I love you. That's what he's saying. I'm your daddy. I love you. Now, here's how we relate to one another. Don't have other gods but me. Don't make images of any god. Right? He continues on through all of the Ten Commandments telling them not how to live so they can be in relationship with Him, but how to live because they're in relationship with Him. So in, in Exodus, 
the Old Testament acts, we see God redeem his people. We see God's selected mediator deliver to them the law. And we see that the people receive that law as grace. Where in the world do I get that? Because some of you and I, we've grown up thinking the law was nothing but harsh legalism. And that's not true. Look at verse 20, chapter 24, verse 9. The whole of this, and I'm, doing, I'm, I'm cliff noting it for you because time's sake. If we walk through, there are so many parallels right here to our text in Acts 2 that without this text, Acts 2 stands kind of oddly on the page. It's caused some people, because I believe they missed this connection, to think that something brand new, never thought of before, happened in Acts 2. And I don't find that to be the case. What I find to be the case is Acts 2 is the fulfillment of a great work in the Old Testament. It's an absolute fulfillment through Christ of what we see in Exodus 19 through 24. Look at how they received it. In verse 9 it says of chapter 24, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. You could preach months on that. They saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone. Like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. What happened? What did they do? They beheld God and they ate and they drank. They did not receive the law as legalism. They received it as grace. They said, oh God, you are the God of heaven and earth. We have seen you. And we celebrate. I mean, it is so beautiful what's happening here. God forms this covenant community based on His character. And it's known as Israel in the Old Covenant. And it is a shadow. It is a shadow. That community is a shadow of what God does in Acts chapter 2. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see that the community falls apart because not everyone in physical Israel is Israel. And there's a lot of sin and rebellion against God. And God brings in the act of the curse on the people of Israel. As a matter of fact, that's what the Pentecost feast celebrated was the return in the end. It celebrated even earlier. But at the end, in Jesus' day, it was being celebrated as a celebration of the return from exile after 70 years. That's, that's what they, they're celebrating. Is that God, after the curses, brought them back to the land. And God, through this old covenant, paints the picture that there is a coming day when everything will be made right. Everything will be beautiful. Everything will be brought into right relationship with Him. Look quickly forward, Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Without these texts, I don't think we fully grasp Acts chapter 2. I'm not, I'm not taking an exercise of, of a Bible trivia. I'm trying to build for you the background, the picture of what the people experienced at Acts 2. Why they got so excited about what was happening to them. Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord. Another will call on the name of Jacob. 
and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Isaiah 55, another old covenant promise of what happened at Acts chapter 2. Isaiah 55 verses 10 through 11. Same analogy almost. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now what's the bridge between this Old Covenant community and these promises in Isaiah, because remember the people of the Old Covenant lost the community. They lost it. And then Isaiah is saying, you're going to get it again. You're going to get it again. It's going to come like a fresh rain on dry ground. It's going to come like melting snow. It's not going to go away quickly. It's going to soak into you. And you'll receive the blessing of the Word not returning void. You will get everything God promised to you by the one that you're named by, as Isaiah 44 says, the one that is named by the Lord, he writes it on his hand, the Lord's. Who, who is the bridge? What is the bridge between these old covenant and this new covenant? Isn't it Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the Word of God which came in the form of man and He lived a perfect and sinless life. And His reign, His reign fell on dry land in Israel. When Jesus came, Israel was a dry place. They hadn't heard the voice of God in so many centuries, they didn't even know it existed anymore. And yet Jesus came, the Word of God, in flesh, like a, like a fresh rain on dry ground. And He fulfilled the Old Covenant. He lived in community with God without separation and He died so there might be a community of God. John can't express it any other way but to say in John 1.14, the word tabernacled among us. Interestingly, I, for time's sake, I skipped it. In Exodus, right after they received the law, what did they do? They began to prepare to build what? A tabernacle. The word of God came and they built a tabernacle. And that tabernacle represented God from their own in their community. The whole community hubbed around the tabernacle. Everything camped around the tabernacle. And God came down into the tabernacle and the people drew near to it. And then they would go back when He would draw up and they would move forward. And the, the presence of God is seen in that tent, in that tabernacle. Now, Jesus Himself is that tabernacle. He is that bridge that bridges the old and new covenants together. And then he's killed. He's crucified. He's put to death. Can you imagine the heartbreak? I mean, these 12 disciples, as imperfect as they are, say, we found the Messiah. We found the rain that falls on a dry land. We have seen the Word which will not come back without producing result. We've inherited the promise of the Old Covenant. And then it's killed. we do? I don't know. I'm going to go fish. And then when they're fishing there, Jesus appears. 
and he reestablishes the community. Breaking bread with them again, he reestablishes their community. And they go and wait on him in Jerusalem. They wait on the Spirit to come. And that's Acts 1. So Luke bridges the two things together by saying Jesus, Jesus came, he appeared to them, and then he was drawn up into a cloud, and they waited. They waited on the Spirit of the Lord. And that's what we see at the end of Acts 1. All of the people saw for the first time the power and the might of God through the speaking of tongues in verse 11. And God said, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing what I promised Israel. That, we know that's what He said because Peter then rises and explains the tongue speaking how. This is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant promise. You have received the Spirit like God promised. It won't return void. It has its full effect. You are sons of the living God. Jesus is ruling and reigning. And He has poured out this which you are seeing on you today. So many people were mesmerized by that. That they believed immediately. Peter says, and they were baptized. About 3,000 of them. I mean, that, can you imagine in the temple, the pools of the temple filled with converts being baptized? Being baptized. I mean, the Jewish leaders are standing around watching their people be sucked away in their mind. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the promise of the Old Covenant. They've turned their back on it. They're still keeping the institutionalism, but without the promise. And now these apostles come in to the temple and they preach and prophesy so powerfully that people say, I believe. I see the fulfillment of the covenant. It's here. It's Jesus. And they're baptized. Right on the spot in the temple grounds. I mean, I have to imagine. They probably were baptized other places, but I can imagine in Solomon's portico, in the pool, there they are. They're being dumped. And can you imagine the way the people around that were amazed? These people are boldly proclaiming their love for Jesus Christ in the temple. It has such powerful effect. 3,000 are saved that day through His preaching. And then we find the community that we've been preaching about. All the men have preached these verses and they've left me one phrase. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what I have left to preach. Two points. Two things. Grace fellowship. God is glorified. God is glorified as we live in true Christ-centered community. God is glorified. What failed in the Old Covenant? What failed? Did God fail? Absolutely not. The people failed. Because they didn't live in God-centered community anymore. They moved away from the God-centered community. They began to worship idols. They began to be a part of the world instead of apart from the world. They, they just gave in. They just became, they melded in with all the other people. God is not glorified that we simply come here and meet together and sing some songs and preach a sermon and go home. God is glorified when we live in real Christ-centered community. Christ-centered community is... First of all, based on the Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine, verse 42. The Apostles' Doctrine. That is all of the things the Apostles taught. What things? All things. Where did they get all things? From Jesus, Matthew 28. 
Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things I have commanded you. That's the apostles' doctrine. All the things Jesus commanded. The epistles, the gospels, everything you see in there, that's what the people held to. Distinctly they held to the gospel, the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant. The fulfillment in Jesus Christ of the covenant. They held to that. They believed it fiercely. Every sermon they preach will be a history of Israel set in the person of Jesus Christ. It, it goes through. They, they do Paul, Peter, Stephen, they all do. They start walking through the Old Testament and they end in Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all things. It gets Stephen killed. It gets Peter and John beat up. But it's powerful. So, God is glorified when we live in Christ-centered community. Christ-centered community is based on the Apostles' Doctrine. It's based on the Apostles' Doctrine, the teaching of Christ, most specifically the Gospel, the fulfillment of the covenant in Jesus Christ, the good news. Not only that, but Christ-centered fellowship is based on the believers fellowshipping together, koinonia. This word doesn't mean to eat a meal and go home. This word means we have everything in common. Everything. Like you live in your house with your children, the church expects us, God expects us in the church to live that way. You know, when your kid comes in, now you may do this, but I wouldn't recommend it. When your children come into the, into, into the kitchen, they just open the refrigerator, right? Just go right in, they get some stuff, they eat it. You don't charge them for it. I hope. You don't lord it over them. That's mine. Now, Sometimes I fail here, right? I tell my kids, that's mine, you're eating it. But ultimately, everything in that house belongs to me. By law. But by grace, it all belongs to everybody. I earn it through the job God has provided me. God has given it to me, but they all reap the benefit. And I don't hand them a bill at the end of the week. They just live there. They share. They take and they give. That's koinonia. That's the church. They take and give. Take and give. This church is representing that in so many ways. We always dig up the old examples, but they're still good, aren't they? The Fleming family. Go talk to them about Koinonia. See how long it takes them to talk about you. Talk to our family. Talk to the Swinney family. Talk to the countless people you know nothing of because your deacons handle it privately and nicely and lovingly so not to embarrass whole families whole families that live because you provide for them whole families they have what they have because God has given to you and you share freely you give without any expectation let one of our widows buy a new home she'll be overrun Ann Sprayberry has been overrun by so many of you. Now, the church didn't. The church didn't say, hey, we got to go over and do this. Ann needs our help. Let's all get over there. No. People just said, they heard. They connected. They knew one another. They said, oh, Ann's got a need. All right. And the brain started working. All right. The phone started ringing. The emails started going out. People started showing up with paintbrushes and old clothes. Right, Ann? That's about koinonia, isn't it? You feel the love of Christ when you're loved that way. And the world sees it. 
An el- an- a man walked by one day, all the women overworking at Ann's new place. He said, I, I was told this. He said, what are y'all doing this for? Why are y'all doing this? Ann said, stuck her head out, said, because they love me. The world will know you if you koinonia one another, if you love one another, if you have community, if you have fellowship with one another. That's how the world's going to know you. That's how the world's going to know Christ. That's how the world's going to know God. He's glorified through us when we have Christ-centered fellowship. Guys going and hammering nails at Jason's house, that's not just having an impact physically. That's impacting family upon family. There'll be people that'll come for years and say, man, this place is nice. It's well built. Who'd you hire to build it? Well, me and my son and his church came and built this. We worked together. We shared. We all pitched in. And in our day, people say, oh man, they not only know your name, they know you. They not only know you in passing, they love you. I want that. That's what I want. And that's what we see happening because it's based on the community, based on the apostles' doctrine. They have koinonia, fellowship. Food is just a symbol of their fellowship. They're sharing with one another. And they're breaking of bread and prayers. Look what happened when that happened. All. Same thing that happened at Exodus 24, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. All came upon them. Why? Because they saw God. Not because they saw people, but because they saw God. All came on everybody. Every person, every soul was shuddering at the thought that these people truly love one another. And what's the result? The Lord added to their number every day. Every day. Why? Because all came on them. Why did it come on them? Because they saw God, not the works of men. Matthew 5, Jesus says, they will see your good works and they will praise who? The Father in heaven. They will see your good works, they will praise the Father in heaven. So, as we have this community, as we have this fellowship, as we live out the new covenant in our community together, through Christ, we're glorifying God. Secondly, grace fellowship, God is glorified as we live. Excuse me, God will bless us if we live in true Christian community. God's blessing flows to us. Flows to us if we live in this kind of true Christian community. As we close, I want you to think of it this way. This is why 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are in your Bible. These are not health, wealth, and prosperity verses in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. This is not Paul saying, get sow a thousand and reap a hundred thousand. That's not what he's saying. But what he does promise and what is absolutely proof positive true by our example here is that as you sow into the life of another, you will reap from God more blessings so that you may in turn sow more seed. This is what happened. When they became Christians, what separated them was they no longer saw it as theirs, but they saw it as God's. Everything. And they saw it not only as God's, but they saw it as the community's. So it all belongs to the community. And so it was just natural for them to care for one another's needs. The things they had, they didn't count as their own. They counted as God's in the community. So they had open hands towards one another. And they loved one another. And they lived in this Christian community circling around Christ. 
The hub of the old covenant was the tabernacle and the hub of the new covenant is the tabernacle. Jesus Christ. The whole community hubs around him. So when we're doing our work with one another and we're loving one another, we're meeting one another's needs, we're fellowshipping together, we're eating together, we're going into the world and sharing the gospel together, we're doing that because of Christ. Not just because we're good people. Not just because we're nice. Not just because we love one another, but because He loved us. And now we love one another. And so it becomes an automatic platform for the going forth of Christ's name, this koinonia, this true community, fellowship, sharing, having things in common. What does it look like at Grace Fellowship? How should we live this out? Well, this is our proposal to you. This is what we're doing. You may wonder what we're doing. This is what we're doing. We are fellowshipping in times. We are fellowshipping. We are emphasizing the togetherness of the fellowship. Through corporate fellowships, through, sem uh, through breaking the church down, as Dave said, into groups so that groups can fellowship together on a Sunday after church service, sharing a meal, sharing life, talking. How do people know? Here's the thing you need to ask. How do people know about these needs? Because you may be saying, I got needs and nobody helps me. Who are you sharing those needs with? Who are you sharing life with so they see you have a need? If you're in island mode by yourself, don't sit around and sweat and labor by yourself and complain about everybody else. If you live in community with people, they're going to see your needs. And as they see your needs, they're going to want to share that burden because God has blessed them with the Spirit and the Spirit loves itself. And we're loving one another because God loved us. So what we envision is putting you together enough, frequently enough that you see one another, you love one another, and what we see happening from today is this. This does not fulfill these verses. What we're about to do does not fulfill these verses. It does not. It is the beginning point of fulfilling these verses. So we're all sitting around eating together, and somebody at the table begins to talk of Christ. And another brother begins to talk of Christ along with him. And he says, you know, I've been struggling with this particular problem in my life. And that brother immediately begins to say, you know what, I want to pray for you about that. Can I, can I talk with you more about that? And y'all get together outside of church, outside of program. You just love one another. You spend time together. What we're about to do today doesn't fulfill it. It's the launching pad for it. But we think it is important that we have a launching pad. What are the small groups? We envision them as the same thing. They're even smaller opportunities where 70 adults are sitting around a table and eating and talking and fellowshipping and planning things outside these events to do together and loving one another and looking for needs and looking for sin and looking for the glory of God in one another and praising God for the fellowship, encouraging one another as our passage in Hebrews said. That's what we see. These are launching pads. So if you exempt yourself from the launching pad, and you find yourself sitting at home every week from here on out saying, nobody loves me. You missed the launch. You, you, you just kind of, you missed it. You don't have to miss it. We want you there. We want you there. What long term we envision is a church that just lives this way. A church, a church that just, just eats this up. Because then it will become contagious. 
We are not promised to have the same thing happen to us that happened to the people at Pentecost. We're not promised that. But we are promised that God will bless our exalting of Christ through community. We are promised that. So will we have 3,000 added in one day? That's no promise. <clears throat> will we have people added every day? There's no promise to that. But we will be blessed. We know that because we're living in this community. Here's my ultimate vision. And I think I share this. So we talked about it at the retreat with the elders. As we close, I want to say it. These table fellowships we're about to have, what I would like to see us develop into is sitting around a table eating our common meals, all at the same table, and on the table is communion. Bread and juice. So that everyone there knows this is not your everyday fellowship. This is a fellowship around Christ. So when I look across the table, and I see you, and you look across to see me, we're looking across the communion of Christ. How could we ever sit through that and not talk to one another about the Lord? That's like your wife sitting next to you, and you never mention her. It's like your children playing around you. You never engage them, and you never engage anybody about them. So they're sitting around, and when the meal ends, the blessing of the day, it's simply a pastor rising and saying, we've had this fellowship over the word, the apostles doctrine, and we've eaten this meal together. We've enjoyed one another's love and fellowship. Let's take communion together. And like the first saints, our daily ending will be communion together in that intimate setting. I think that will heighten our worship. I think that will heighten our community. I think it will heighten our fellowship. It will make it more real, more unique, more glorifying to God. And so this is kind of where we're going. We're, we're just starting out. We're pushing out of the harbor, so to speak. We're not there. We're not saying we got it all together. We're just figuring out. If you come today, don't expect it to run perfectly. Don't get agitated because it's not perfect. Be patient and loving towards one another fellowship together and don't get in such a hurry <clears throat> that you miss the point the point's not to eat a bagged meal we could all go home and eat a better lunch the point is to be together to love one another to invest in one another and to look for further investment in the future that's what we want to do that's why we've preached this series partly is just to jog your memories and your minds on this okay all right now we get to go live out in the sermon part of the sermon the launching of the sermon, in a sense. We're going to go fellowship together. If you're visiting with us, you say, I've only been here a couple times, it's okay. You're the people we want to come with us and fellowship with us and fellowship alongside us and get to know us. We want to open up and let you see the Real Grace Fellowship, all right? And you'll get to see that in the pool, I'm sure. Lots of fun, kids running, jumping, diving, having a blast. Just loving one another, okay? All right, let's pray together.